Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, October 5th, 2012. This week is episode 258. We're coming to you from Studio D in Central City, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Joining us from Studio C is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Hey, Joe. Hey, guests. Uh, thanks for listening. Hey, Cliff. At the controls is our engineer, Roxy V, Val Bender. Hi, everyone. Dr. Wow will be back next week to join us. And uh, before we move on to thank our sponsors, today's interview will be with Larry Carlson with the Phoenix Thermostar Group. We're going to talk a little bit about drying technology and drying techniques today. Before we start the interview, let's thank our marquee sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanclenfax.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Don't forget, we also have continuing education credits available. Just email me and request a quiz. My email is joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, let's please thank the IAQ Training Institute. Visit that website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com let's turn it over to the z-man for today's iaq radio trivia question thanks joe when a cool prize by outcompeting your fellow iaq radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer via your computer. Congratulations. (laughs) 
2, John Lapotere, MicroShield Environmental Services, Winter Springs, Florida, for being the first listener to identify William Lamar Billy Bean III as the former professional baseball player and current front office executive who has applied statistical analysis known as sabermetrics to baseball players and who was the subject of both the book and the movie. The IQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, October 5th, 2012, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Check out their new electronic membership category at their website, www trsca.org. Now for this week's trivia question. Name the song written by Irving Berlin in 1919, better known for a part of the lyric, How Dry I Am. Over to you, Joe. Hmm. All right. Today's guest is Larry Carlson. Disaster restoration professionals know when it comes to equipment, Larry is their go-to guy. Larry joined Thermostore as a product manager in 1992. He introduced the Phoenix 200 to the restoration market in 1994 and oversaw the expansion of the Phoenix product line until 2003. After a two-year tenure at Dry Air Technology, he returned to Thermostore in 2006. Currently, Larry is the Phoenix Restoration Industry Manager and their International Sales Manager. He has been a member of the RIA since 1994 and a registrant with the IICRC since 1998. He also participated in the creation of the Applied Structural Drying Certification and is currently serving on the IICRC's S-500 Consensus Committee, which is in the midst of creating the fourth edition of the S-500 Standard and Reference Guide for Professional Water Damage Restoration. I think we have some intro music for Larry. got to have something to do with the trivia question, Cliff. I'm it not does, sure. but that's the song. They're just going to name the... You know. Larry, do we have you on the line? You've got me. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. My pleasure. We've been trying to line this one up for a while here. We finally all connected on the same day. Larry, you, you've been in the drying world for a long time, and I know you deal with a lot of disaster restoration people out there, and, and you know, I'm Cliff's been in the business for ages. I'm somewhat new to the cleaning and restoration side of things, but I, I, I know that the first step in, in trying to get a building dried down is to get as much moisture out as, as, as quickly as possible. So get that liquid moisture out. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, why that's so important and then what types of extraction equipment uh, is best for doing that? Well, uh, certainly as far as the types of equipment that's necessary or uh, that I recommend, I'm a little biased in my opinions. Uh, the reason that extraction is so important is because of the amount of energy and labor you have to put into removing whatever water is left. Uh, the only way to 
to take care of whatever's left after your extraction process is to go through the process of adding energy to it, forcing it to evaporate, putting it into the air, then removing it from the air with a piece of equipment and uh, either expelling it outside or condensing it into liquid water and putting it down a drain. So the amount of energy and the amount of time required to do direct extraction is, uh, I've heard, 500 times faster than evaporating water. And probably the reality is it's more like 1,000 times faster. Uh, what you need to do uh, to do proper extraction, and what I would do is maybe cite the wet study because it's the only really third-party <clears throat> testing that's been done. Uh, they tested a variety of different methods of extraction. And the uh, HydroX that Kurt Molden developed was the unit that uh, performed the best in that test. Now, that test was done back in, uh, I think, 2004 or 2003. But they did repeat the test uh, to verify their accuracy. So depending on <clears throat> what you're extracting from is going to determine what piece of equipment you work uh, that you end up using. Uh, commercial glue-down carpets or uh, hard surfaces, uh, usually a light wand is really the best method. Uh, you start going into where you've got carpet and cushion, then you have to use uh, more sophisticated devices. Uh, you've got your uh, weighted drag wands, you've got your uh, self-propelled uh, devices like the uh, HydroX, uh, the Rover, uh, and then you've also got the water claw, which is uh, pretty effective on uh, carpet and cushion. So, and it's really a matter of finding the device you like to use the best and then testing after you've used it to make sure that you've achieved the results you want. A lot of people, unfortunately, figure out that uh, maybe they need to do two passes with a HydroX. They do their two passes. They figure they're done without really going and pulling the carpet back, checking the cushion, giving it a good squeeze, and making sure you're getting all the water out of it you can. I'm glad you described that. Now, let me, I have two follow-ups on that, and then I want to turn it over to Cliff. This is his baby. But first, I've, I've heard several uh, terms used for describing that water that's still in, you know, materials in a building. I, I think uh, Bill Rose used bound water. Um, what's the term you typically use or prefer? Well, uh, I guess <clears throat> as opposed to the, the water that's left after extraction, I would say you've got two categories of water there. You've got free water, which is liquid water, because no matter how good your extraction process is, there's still going to be some liquid water left on the premises. And then, uh, so that is, uh, the liquid water is free water, uh, and then the water that is actually penetrated into the materials and may be there either in a liquid or even a vapor state is what I refer to as bound water. Bound and that's water. the water that you essentially has to move through the material uh, probably by capillary action if it's liquid 
or it has to <clears throat> uh, essentially migrate through the material through uh, essentially the cell walls and so on if you're talking about wood. Because, I mean, wood, you've got several, several layers of cells there. You may have liquid water in one cell. It may not be able to move through the cell as a liquid. It's got almost like evaporator vaporized, move through the cell, and it may end up going through a series of uh, condensing and evaporating motions as it moves toward uh, the drier surface. And you also mentioned the wet study, and I just was curious, who did the wet study, if you know, I understand. Uh, the ISCT uh, commissioned that, and I believe it was back in 2003. Uh I should have pulled it out, uh, but they uh, did a series of testing, I believe, in January of one year, and they tested four different types of carpet uh, with uh, with a cushion. They did uh, uh, frise. I'm not a carpet guy. They did a uh, a loop, a cut loop and they did a uh, Berber. And then <clears throat> what they did is they actually analyzed the water. They did it at Shaw Industries uh, down in Georgia. Okay. Or I think it's Dalton, Georgia, isn't it? Or Dalton, I think Georgia. so, yeah. And we can get Cliff, maybe we could put that in your blog, Cliff, who, who was there. And I, I, gotta, I, I want you to hear something, Larry, just in case this happens again. Go ahead, Val. <laughs> They're back, Cliff. We got the acronym police back. The acronym police is, is back. <laughs> they they kind of pull you over. So um, ISCT, Larry, what's the ISCT? And I, I know that, that you may not know because people sometimes use these acronyms and they've used them for so long they forget what it stood for originally. That's right. Uh, ISCT, uh, it's either inspection or institute. So I think it's the or international international society of cleaning uh, technicians. Uh, there got you it. go. Got it. Okay. All right. But it doesn't exist anymore. It's been replaced by the FCRT. Oh, okay. Okay. That's why I didn't recognize it then. All right. Very good, Cliff. Let me turn it over to you. Okay. Well, I think we've got enough, Joe, on on extraction. I thought you know you gave a great answer, and uh, you know you had a couple of follow up questions there that you know I. I I thought we're, we're, we're right on point. Larry, what, type, what primary types of drying systems are used today by water damage restoration firms? Uh, I think uh, if you want to go through the, uh, essentially the strategy or the technique they use, I think your basic uh, evaporation using air movers and then using uh, dehumidifiers to remove the, the water from the air. You've got those guys. You could split those into, I guess, possibly three groups, the ones that use conventional dehumidifiers, the one that use LGRs, and then the ones that will primarily use desiccants. Uh, and then you've also got your heat-based people, and then you've got hybrids of them. So, uh, and we're gonna we're gonna kind of go into this. Yeah, Larry, yeah. Let, can I follow up on that real quick? You've, in the S five hundred, they have open, closed, and combination. I think is kind of the 
the foundation. And, and open, I assume, is, you know, you've got low relative humidity outside. You open the windows and doors. You suck that low relative humidity air into the building and pull the high relative humidity air out of the building. And that's often done by people when they're drying their own buildings. Then closed, I understand, you know, you've got some combination of air movers and dehumidifiers. You close the windows and the doors. What's a combination, if you if you could help me with that? Uh Pardon me? Just say that again. What, what would be the combination of... I oh, a combination? I, yes. Uh, that could be people that are doing the, the term burping, which I absolutely despise. But <laughs> it's the term I hate. Uh, but there they will uh, essentially take devices, try and drive the humidity up in the space when they have lower humidity outside instead of doing a constant exhaust ventilation. Uh, they will essentially open up the area, try and try and essentially uh, flood all of the high humidity air out of it, replace it with dry air, and then they'll essentially close it up again. Okay. Uh, and, right, and and I, I guess there's some, um, I, I guess discussion about um, whether to segregate wet areas of the building from areas that are dry you know, within a building. I guess there are uh, advantages, you know, to doing that and, and perhaps some disadvantages to doing that. Could you comment on that? Well, in my opinion, there are only, dis there are only advantages in restricting or can, uh, essentially containing your wet areas and protecting them from your dry or unaffected areas. Uh, that way you can... The equipment that you use to do the drying can be sized more appropriately to the area that's wet. You can concentrate your energy on what's wet instead of wasting your time trying to uh, essentially take care of areas that aren't wet. Uh, the unaffected areas, if you don't close them off, you run the risk of having them become affected. Uh, higher humidity in the house or in the structure you could have that air migrate to uh, an area of the building that perhaps doesn't have the same environmental controls. you got colder, colder uh, areas and surfaces, and all of a sudden an area that didn't have any problems, you've got condensation forming on them. So I think it's important to find, uh, essentially <clears throat> map out or identify your affected areas and then take steps to make sure that that air does not uh, move and contaminate the unaffected areas. I'm not going to argue with you. It makes a lot of sense, Joe. Okay. Um, I had to step away for a moment, but I, I want to know, where does the water go during the drying process, I guess, is uh, kind of a question. Or, or how does bound water become unbound, I guess, is, is another component of that. You can take either one, Larry. Uh, I'll try to do both. Uh, first off, <clears throat> any water, any liquid water that's in materials, the only way you're going to get rid of it after extraction is through evaporation, unless, I guess, I suppose you could have some drain away, but no, normally that would drain away before. So what you have to do is you have to evaporate it into the air. The air ends up becoming the media. Then you either exhaust the air or you run it through a dehumidifier to 
essentially recycle it and turn it back into dry air that can, uh, can take more water on. So you, you've got kind of a process going where you're making the air dry, letting it get wet, drying it out, making it wet in a continual loop. Uh, as far as moving through materials, uh, depending on the material, it, it's going to move in different ways. I mean, in wood, you've got a series of cells, and it's got to move through those cells, and it can sometimes move around the outsides of the cells, and sometimes it has to move through the cells. But that's essentially the air, because nature demands equilibrium. When you present a, a dry surface to a wet material, the wet material will try to uh, essentially evaporate into that dry air and uh, vice versa. If you have wet air and a dry material, the moisture will migrate to the dry material. that work? Works yeah, I, I, it, it, it does, but I think I want to revisit the, uh, the first part of the question. When you're using a refrigerant or LGR dehumidification uh, device within a home, where does the water go? Uh, LGRs, the water is condensed on the cooling coils, goes to a reservoir pump, and is pumped either into a bucket or down a drain. Okay, so in that case, what's important is the customer can see it. They can see how many gallons was removed, correct? Yeah, okay. and, and most of the more sophisticated restorers will use a, a bucket or a trash can or something so that they can actually show the water removal. Unfortunately, some guys just throw the hoses into a drain, and then unless you're catching it when it's pumping, you don't necessarily see it. And unless you're not monitoring your equipment, you may, you may be charging for a machine that's running, but it may not be taking out any water. Gotcha. And where does the water go if they use a desiccant dehumidifier? Uh, if they use a desiccant, the uh, water is absorbed in the desiccant wheel on the process side, and then that wheel uh, rotates, uh, continually rotates at a, a slow pace, uh, like uh, almost minutes for each revolution, and then the uh, moisture is blasted out of it with hot air and hot air is blown through that hydroscopic material, forcing it to uh, essentially evaporate, and then it follows that airstream, which is the reactivation airstream, and then that is dusted outside. Okay, so in, in that case, the vapor is actually exhausted outside. Right. And, and what happens when they use a heat-drying system? Uh, it's similar. If it's a good heat-drying system, uh, they have a choice of either using dehumidifiers or they can use exhaust ventilation or they may use both. Okay, so essentially heat doesn't work by itself, so they're gonna, you, you're going to need something else. You're either going to need an exhaust system or you're going to need a um, dehumidification system. And what, which dehumidification system would you recommend to be used along with the heat drying system? Uh, well, if you're using a heat drying system, the chances are the uh, temperatures in your affected area are going to be higher, so then you have to use a dehumidifier that is designed to operate in higher temperatures. Uh, okay. 
Phoenix makes a couple that you do uh, use uh, a bypass uh, technology, which uh, allows for higher temperature operation. I don't want to get too deep into it because okay. I don't want to confuse people. Right. Uh, but when you're talking about this this type of dehumidifier, can you generally categorize it as a desiccant or a non-desiccant? Uh, usually, with usually with desiccants, when they start encountering higher temperatures, say above 105 degrees, they start running into uh, some problems because. Where a refrigerant dehumidifier has a cooling coil and it really operates off of cooling the air down to a dew point so it'll condense, mm-hmm. a desiccant dehumidifier operates more on the uh, the uh, restrictions of relative humidity. And so you have to have a big temperature change between what the process air temperature is and what the reactivation air temperature is because you need to get a, a dramatically different relative humidity that gets blown through the wheel to evaporate the moisture off. So if you had a desiccant that had a real high reactivation temperature, it would allow you to work better in some of those higher temperatures, but then the wheel has a tendency to retain heat. So if the wheel's retaining heat, uh, it makes it less uh, susceptible or compatible to absorbing moisture that's coming into it. So usually refrigerants at higher temperatures work better, and like I said, you can either have bypass, uh, dries those uh, fans, they manipulate the fan speed uh, with their temperature, and then we also have uh, a device that goes on top of the machine, uh, some of our units called a, a LGR performance amplifier. Mm-hmm. It essentially is a pre-cooler. So you take that hot air, pre-cool it to one step, and then the dehumidifier cools it the next. Larry, I'd like to know more about that and just low-grain refrigerant LGR technology in general. But before we do that, I have one more follow-up on the process. When you're doing the heat drying, you said you could either you know, uh, use, a, use it in combination with a dehumidifier or... I guess um, in combination with something that helps to pump it outside, is that what I understood you to say? And normally what you do is you'd set up an exhaust fan. Okay. Uh, you would take the uh, hot, moist air that you have in the space and exhaust it outside. Now the problems you can run into with that is the air that comes in from outside to replace what you're exhausting out is... Uh, essentially beyond your control. So if you've got extremely high grains outside, if you're using a heat drying system in Jackson, Florida, Jacksonville, Florida in the middle of the summer, it's not going to be as effective as using a, uh, uh, a an exhaust heat drying system in, say, January or February, just based on how many grains are in the outside air. If you've got 128 grains in the outside air, you're not going to get lower than 128 grains on your inside air. Got it, got it. And then, so that's when you would go to a dehumidifier approach along with your your uh, heat system. Yes. Okay, okay. That that explains it very nicely for me. Now, the low grain refrigerant 
LGR dehumidifier concept. I, I'm dying for someone to explain that to me in simple terms uh, so that I can uh, repeat it down the road. Can you help me out with that? Simple terms. <laughs> Not as easy as I thought, huh? How do you, well, I guess, how do you... I, I guess what, what I'd say is you have to start somewhere. So if you start with a conventional dehumidifier, okay. uh, which is similar to an air conditioner, the, uh, that device is normally able to take the ambient air temperature that's coming into the machine and drop that temperature about 20 degrees. So if your dew point temperature, the point of condensation, is in, within, say, 20 degrees of what you're bringing in, that machine will take water out. Once it goes to, say, 25 or 30 degrees, now, all of a sudden, the machine uses all of its energy to cool that air down 25, 30 degrees, <clears throat> but you still haven't hit the dew point, so it won't take out water. What an LGR does is it, it's an enhanced refrigeration system. It's done a couple of different ways, uh, but what it does, uh, the early systems, and our first one used an air-to-air heat exchanger to try to pre-cool the incoming air, so that the cooling coil would be able to cool it down even further. Okay. And essentially what we did there is we took the air coming off of the cooling coil, and we would channel that through an air-to-air heat exchanger to pre-cool what was coming in. So it's uh, air-to-air heat exchanger. There's no moisture transfer that's done in the changer so that uh, the air streams are completely separated. So all you're doing is absorbing heat from the air that's coming into the unit. Hmm. Okay. Bayes did the same thing with their 2400s, LGR 2000s, evolutions using a heat pipe. And what a heat pipe is, is a, a sealed refrigeration system that is, uh, it doesn't have a compressor on it. So it's essentially it's a pair of cooling coils that sandwich the evaporator coil or the cold coil, and it transfers energy from the front to the back, so it also does pre-cooling. Okay. You wanted simple, and now it's just moved past simple. Well, no, I uh, think that's, that's very good. Uh, go ahead. I was going to say, and we've just developed a new method for an LGR that we call GTR, which is uh, graduated thermal reduction. There what we do is we take some of the incoming air, we, do, we take our condenser or our reheat coil, and we focus what's referred to as the superheat or the hottest part of the refrigerant on a particular portion of this coil, and we blast air through that, to take energy out of the system. One thing you have to keep in mind with a refrigeration system is the energy that absorbs has to be exhausted. So it's a closed system. It doesn't store any energy. So in order to get a coil cold, all of the energy that you absorb off of that cold coil has to be expelled off the condenser or the reheat coil. And when machines stop operating, sometimes it's because that condenser or that reheat coil doesn't have the capacity to blow any more or exhaust any more energy. So it limits the system in that way. 
Okay. All right. I, I bet everybody is just sitting there scratching their heads. Well, no, I think a lot of people, a lot of our listeners will follow that. It's not easy to explain. I think you did a better job than I've, I've heard in the past, and uh, I appreciate that. And I think what I'll do is add some graphics to that, and, you know, I'll be able to use it in classes down the road for those that don't have any idea of how these things work. But we appreciate that. Joe, Joe I think there's one thing that I would like to add, and then I'd oh. like Larry to comment on it if, if he... Uh, has a differing opinion. You know, one of the challenges that uh, disaster restoration company has in a water damage situation is the amount of available electricity within a house, Joe. There's only a certain amount of electrical power. Some of that power is necessary to run systems in that house, you know, refrigeration and uh, or heat and fans and, and, and so on and so forth. So there's only a certain amount. So the restore only has a certain amount to work with. And I think equipment manufacturers recognize that. And what they did was make their equipment more efficient so that with the amount of electricity available, the restore was able to more efficiently you know, remove moisture with this refrigeration equipment. So I'm not sure. Would you agree with that, Larry, or not? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you look up at older homes, I mean, older homes may only have, say, 60-amp service, and now you're trying to run a, a variety of different equipment on there. Uh, it's definitely one of the limiting factors. I know Lloyd Weaver used to say that it was, uh, you used as much as you had on your truck Correct, and then could run without blowing the circuit. No, 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 no. That, that, that's not what he said. He said use, you know, as many. You keep plugging them in until you blow a fuse, then you um, then you take one out. <laughs> Is what he would say. But, and then yeah. you hope there's not a pump that's going to turn on and knock it out five minutes after you leave the circuit. Absolutely, that's, yeah. That would be the real disaster for you then. You know, uh, absolutely knock everything out. Hey, Larry, we've got to go to our halftime and thank our sponsors. We'll be right so back. Please hang on. We'll be right back. All right. Thanks to our association sponsors, the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. The Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. 
Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing services for the restoration industry for fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing. Learn more about them at www.netclaimsnow.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleancleanfax.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, we're back with the second half of our interview with Larry Carlson and uh, Cliff. I, I, I want to mention also Phoenix Thermostore. Appreciate them uh, having Larry on, and I want to turn it over to you, Cliff. Okay, thanks, Joe. Let's talk about the options available to restoration contractors for heat drying. Can you go over what's out there, Larry, what the options are? Sure. Uh, you've got the uh, electric-based heating systems, uh, or you use an electrical element and use that to add heat. <clears throat> Sometimes those are used for uh, more of particular areas. Uh, where you might have a difficult material. Uh, I've had people say they've had, say, a cinder block wall that's got drywall over it, and uh, they have trouble getting those areas to dry. There you might focus heat on that area. Uh, you've also got, like, the, uh, I guess I'll use TEF systems. Uh, they have both electric and hydronic systems. Uh, with a hydronic system, what you do is you put the energy into uh, normally a glycol, uh, similar to a boiler, but I think Tess uses a boiler system. Uh, we make one also. It's more like an insta-heat sort of system. Uh, but you you heat the liquid, run it to a fan coil unit that's inside the building, and then uh, blow the heat out. Very similar to what you'd have with a hot water heating system in a house, except uh, running higher temperatures. And uh, pretty much that's it. I mean, those are your sources. You've got... I guess propane systems, too, uh, and diesel-fired uh, indirect systems where uh, they'll use essentially a combustion chamber to uh, heat the air and then uh, blast air into a house. Okay, so l- let, me, let me get this right for our, for our listeners. So if I had an electric system... I plug it in, and it blows hot air into the space where the equipment is set up. Correct. Correct. Does that have to be exhausted or not? As it absorbs the moisture, yeah. You have to, you have, to have some sort of strategy for removing the moisture that you put into the air. Okay, so once we evaporate it, we, we need to get rid of it. But that's not built into the device, is it? No. No, okay, so we, we need to make arrangements for that. Correct. Okay, and, and, and I guess that would be similar to one of those large propane systems as well. It's going to bring, you know, push a lot of air into the house. Does it, remove the moist, does it remove the moisture that's evaporated? 
you've got two types of propane systems. You've got direct and indirect. Okay. If it's indirect, then your combustion chamber is separated from your processed air chamber, so you don't get the combustion gases going in to the uh, into your hot air stream. Okay. With a direct system, your combustion gases do go into your hot air stream. Those okay. systems have to be exhausted. Okay. Uh, and normally in most systems, you figure if you're blowing 1,000 CFM into, into a building, okay. yeah, it's going to exhaust. I mean, uh, the house isn't a balloon. It's not going to expand. Okay. So if you're blowing it in, it's going to get out. Gotcha. But, but with one, you have to worry about those exhaust gases. Correct. Yeah, there are limitations that you have with uh, direct-fired heat systems. And, and how does the hydronic system work? Uh, similar to, uh, say, a hot water or heating system you might have in your house. You've like got, a radiator. Yeah. Uh, now, what is done with the test is you take your, uh, your glycol, uh, which they run instead of water so that you don't have to worry about freezing and cracking. Uh, they run a, a, a glycol mixture into the heating chamber. The heating chamber heats that up, uh, and then it's pumped into a fan coil unit. The fan coil has a radiator and a fan and blows air to uh, carry the heat off of the radiator. Systems we make uh, generally start at about 300,000 BTUs and then go up to 900,000 BTUs. So there's a lot more energy there. The advantages of a hydronic system is, <clears throat> go back to your, uh, to your physics. If you look at the amount of energy required uh, to change temperatures of things, uh, a BTU is essentially the amount of energy it takes to uh, heat a pound of water one degree. A pound of water is about a pint. So if you look at a 16-inch or a 16-ounce bottle of water, that's uh, it'd take a BTU to raise the temperature of that one degree. It takes uh, 0.24 uh, BTUs to heat a pound of air. A pound of air is 14 cubic feet. So you take 14 cubic feet times 4, which takes you up to what, uh, 52? Uh, 52 cubic feet of air, the same amount of energy that it takes to heat that water, that, that little bottle of water, 1 degree, is the same amount of energy that will heat that same amount of air, 1 degree. So it's a lot more efficient take that water, pump it into a house directly where you're going to use it, and then convert it into heating the air up. Is that too confusing? Well, I think that I've got a couple, I've got a follow-up question that, that I think may clarify it you know, for, for the listeners. Okay. okay. Let's go back to the first one that we talked about, the electric-based heating system in, in and and uh forgive me or, or correct me if, if if i make a mistake okay so this electric 
heating system that, that we talked about with the heating element would be quite similar to an electric furnace. Correct. Okay. So essentially, from a restoration technology, we would say that it's an adaption or a perfection of an existing technology. Correct. Okay. All right. And then we have this direct fired one, which is in some way similar to a propane heater or a man heater or something like that that we might use in in a construction site, but again, you know, perfected and adapted for restoration. Correct. Okay. Now, the ones that seem to me a little bit different or a little bit special would be, uh, you know, the, the, the propane indirect because that was not, you know, that was something that was, you know, made up or, you know, made up specifically for our industry, or was it used uh, elsewhere? No, uh, I would I would take and think of that system as being similar to a gas furnace. Right. In a house. Okay. Okay. So that I mean, your your combustion gas is there, sent up the flue. Okay. And the air is heated. So it's like a portable furnace in a trailer or something. Okay. And then the hydronic would be similar to a portable uh, hot water heating system. Correct. Okay, good. And with the electric, do you still have to get the electric from the residence or the building, or do you have an outside source of the electric, and, and how does that play into the uh, decisions on what to use, Larry? Well, you got to look at how much power you have in the house and how much of that power you can devote to the heat. Okay. So uh, normally, if you have to do supplemental heat to a house, uh, you're just looking to add a couple of degrees, you can take and devote a circuit. Uh, if you follow UL guidelines where you don't draw more than, say, 12 amps off of a 15-amp circuit or 80% of the available power on the outlet, you can get about 5,100 BTUs per circuit. Uh, 5,100 BTUs, <clears throat> uh, put it in context, you're, if you had an electric furnace, or uh, you had a furnace in Pittsburgh, with the winters that you uh, have, you had a 2,000-square-foot house, your furnace would probably be in the area of an 80 to 90,000 BTU furnace. So we're talking about 5,000 BTUs per 15-amp circuit when you're using electric. Okay. A lot of times what guys will have to do is they may go to the box. If they have higher-amp service coming into the house, <clears throat> they can draw power off the box. If the power isn't available off the box and they want to use uh, a lot of electrical power, then they may bring a generator and run a generator. The equipment that Phoenix makes, your electric heating system, would that be 110 or 220 volt? Both. But, okay, so you have them both. Yes. So a lot of times, Joe, they use the dryer outlet, correct, or, or an oven outlet in the kitchen. Yeah, yeah we make one device that... Uh, Actually, you make two devices that can access uh, 230 uh, or 220 power, uh, and either one will work either with a 50-amp circuit or a 30-amp circuit, 50-amp being your range, and then uh, 
30 amp in your dryer. And then you select which power uh, on the machine uh, you select your source. Gotcha. Or you pop a breaker and then you, and then you go back and then you select your source. <laughs> Correct. Okay. Uh, we have one machine that does 110. It has six 110 circuits and one 220 circuit. And that unit, if you utilize a range outlet and you utilize six uh, of the 110 circuits, it'll do 61,000 BTUs. So it all depends on what you got available and what you can do. That's the beauty of, say, like the hydronic systems. Right. Because there you're using diesel fuel or propane that is, and it's the, the power plant is outside the house. So all of the available power in the house is still available for doing what you need to do in the house. Did they use that for something before restoration? Oh, sure, construction. Okay, gotcha. In construction drying, they've used hydronic systems. Uh, they use it a variety of agricultural uses. Uh, right now, uh, we've got a uh, construction equipment division that's working with... Uh, Oil drilling okay. uh, up in Canada, where they have to keep the pump house warm. Okay. So a variety of different places it's used. Fracking. Can't let that water uh, freeze when you're fracking. Right, right. That's a new place. Well, they're doing that in water in Pennsylvania now, so hopefully they'll sell some equipment here. Range resources, I think, is one of the big ones here. We're always trying. <laughs> Go ahead, Jeff. All right. When you, let's say um, I'm, I'm, out, I'm I'm trying to determine which equipment is going to give me the most bang for my buck, you know, what criteria is important for deciding what type of drying equipment is going to perform most cost-effectively on a, on a drying project? Well, first thing you do is you have to go in, scope your job out, look at your house, see how much power is available, see what your outside conditions are. And then you really have to take all of those variables. And from that, you, of course, have to factor in what you have. And, you know, what a large commercial job, it's much more economical to use, uh, often case, a, a large desiccant dehumidifier than it would be to use several portable dehumidifiers. Uh, it all depends on the scope of the job, what you need to do, what your outside conditions are. Like I said before, with Jacksonville, Florida, if you have 128 grains outside and you want to dry a house using a heat system, that house is going to have to be awfully, awfully hot, and the grains inside are never going to get below 128 grains. So, you know. Well, I'm glad you mentioned you. Out of variables. Well, I'm glad you mentioned what you have because, you know, obviously not everybody has every one of these pieces of equipment. So let's say we've got a new guy starting out in the water damage business. Uh, what would be the most important first purchase with respect to equipment? First purchase uh, should be an LGR dehumidifier. Okay. And if, I and wanna... Just because they... They work in the wide, uh, a wider range of conditions or most of the conditions that you find within a conditioned space. And when I say, you know, if you're going into a house and the house is a heated house, 
then chances are your temperatures are going to be above 70 degrees. And, uh, you know, 80 to 90 degrees is really more the ideal sort of temperature for uh, drying something quickly. And that's what you have to wonder about is how fast do you want to dry the place? Because there's, you know, people have thrown out three-day drying, five-day drying, seven-day drying. Sorry about that deepen. Hello? Yeah, we're here. We're still okay. Here. I was going to say, I didn't know if that was something coming in or... I don't know. I didn't even hear it. Oh, even better. Uh, <laughs> it's, I guess I must have some stuffing in my head to keep it from getting to the microphone. Uh, and now I lost my train of thought. Well, you were talking three, five, seven days of drying. and I, I mean... Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it depends how much equipment you put in. One of the things that we've been talking about in the S-500 committee is they had the initial dehumidification factors established as far as how much dehumidification you need based on the cubic footage of the area you're drying and the type of materials in that area. But it really doesn't address how long it's going to take to dry that area. So we're adding language so that with the initial numbers that it's for more like a four- to six-day drying scenario. If you want three days, it takes more equipment. If you, you know, if it's something where time is not of the essence but you want to make consistent progress on it, you can go with a, say, a less uh, aggressive means. So you really have to gauge it to what you want. But uh, I would say I prefer axial air movers because they move more air, and the more air you move, the better your evaporation can be with your free water. And then a refrigerant dehumidifier is essentially basic equipment if you want to do it. And and with the the air movers, I've always been curious about that, Um, you know, Obviously, these air movers uh, come in various sizes and different uh, configurations, etc. What's the what's the advantage of having a, an air moving a piece of air movement equipment from a disaster restoration company versus a, a box fan of some type? Oh, <clears throat> well, uh, the effective airflow. Uh, so it's it's going to be the. It's not just. CFM alone in a lot of those systems, if you take a box fan and you set it in your window and you have a breeze blowing outside you'll and you watch those blades, those blades will slow down. Uh, they don't have the static pressure or the energy uh, necessary in order to continue to propel that air. When you get into a water damage situation, you usually run a lot of air movers and you've got a lot of airflow going on. And if you use the conventional box fan, uh, it's really kind of wimpy. You you get the airflow across some of those surfaces, but not the way you would like. Uh, You you don't create pressure differentials the way you probably should. Uh, You're not disrupting the boundary layer uh, across your wet surface. So there's a big difference between a $400 axial fan and a $30 box fan. Gotcha. Will a $30 box fan eventually dry a building? If you don't do anything, a building will eventually dry. So, again, it's speed. 
how fast you want to do it, how effectively do you want to do it. So it's better than nothing, but uh, there are professional. There's professional equipment that's available. That's right. Okay, Cliff. Okay, Larry. Um, in what types of water loss situations would an air scrubber be useful? Hmm. That's a controversial point. Uh, according to the uh, the standard, if you have a class or a Category 3 water loss, you have to do something to uh, contain the contaminated area and exhaust air from it. Uh, and what's what Category more, 3 for the listeners? Uh, category 3, that's uh, essentially like a sewage loss sewage. or a contaminated mold. Okay, gotcha. Uh, where you've got essentially, I think the term is gross contamination. Uh, then you've also got category two, where it, it's kind of a uh, gray area and referred to as gray water, uh, as far as how dirty it is, how much contamination may be involved. And then you've got clean water, which is class one and or category one. I'm sorry, and. There, it's clean water, but clean water going into a carpet, I mean, anybody who's cleaned a carpet knows carpet's not necessarily clean. Right. When you clean a carpet, you'll often have odors. Well, the odors that you're getting are essentially caused by biological actions unless there's some sort of deodorizer or something that's, you know, in your in your wash. So I think it... Uh, you add water. Water is uh, what the uh, the thing of life. You add water to a lot of things, and they may have been dormant before, and they start to come alive. Yeah, I, I just read an article actually that uh, Dick Driscoll wrote, and you know, he's affiliated with Dries, and you know he was talking about biologically related odors, and. Uh, you know, the bacteria is what's what's causing them, and, and so on and so forth. And I, I really disagree with it because there's some material, such as wool carpet. You know, like when you wash your dog, it smells like a wet dog. That's not <laughs> caused by bacteria. It's just some materials uh, get wet, and they have an unusual smell immediately. You know, drywall and paper and and wood and so on and so forth. Have you found that? To a corroder once. Yeah, but <clears throat> those odors, once you dry the space out, those odors are gone. Correct. No, absolutely. Uh, and actually, most of the biologicals, you dry them out, they become inactive or dormant, and they're gone. Uh, you know, we have another branch of our business that makes residential dehumidifiers for essentially stinky basements. Right. Mm -hmm. Once you take a basement, get it under 50% RH. The odors usually go away. Uh, no, and and I, I yeah, I would agree that you know the first odor that you need to be concerned about will be bacteria because it's going to grow faster than uh, fungal materials are going to or fungal organisms are going to grow. But they're just you know I've been in you know, created a lot of water damages on our own buildings for teaching people how to dry, and you know some of these materials smell wet immediately. Yeah. Well, I'm, yeah, and you can go into a place. I mean, we all know what a wet building smells like. But most of the wet buildings, especially with, like, ASD classes and so on, right. those are 
wet, clean buildings, because they're flooded all the time. Uh, the, the other thing that needs to be considered is when you wet a building down and then you throw all these air movers into it, now are you throwing things into the air that wouldn't have been in the air otherwise? And there are some restoration contractors that use uh, air scrubbers essentially on every job they do. I think that it is a safety step, in their opinion. It's probably also a billing step, in their opinion. But you have to look at the, uh, the occupants of the house. If you've got children... If you've got older people, if you've got anybody that's got asthma or uh, immune-compromised conditions, running an air scrubber and probably uh, containing the affected area and making sure that it's uh, exhausted outside so that uh, the contaminated air isn't moving into the rest of the structure is important. I don't see a downside to that, Larry. Do you? No, I don't either. And, you know, I think that I would put it in... You know, I think I would advocate one to be used or, or several would be used on every project. And, you know, whether you charge for it or not, you know, I think if you can get paid for it, that's a good thing. But, um, you know, I think that it's certainly going to assist with indoor environmental quality issues. Yeah. I, I, <clears throat> uh, and uh, Joe said, there is no downside. Right. I mean, you're certainly not causing any harm by running right. Uh, and I guess depending on the situation, it could be debatable whether or not you're doing any good. But uh, I always think it's better to be safe than sorry. Right. Well, like the doctors, uh, you know, do no harm. I can't see how it's going to do any harm, particularly if if there's not a cost for it. The only thing I could think of that might be a, a, a minor downside, and it could be major in some cases, is that they pull a good bit of electric too, Larry. Any right. comparison on what a um, air filtration device being used as a scrubber, uh, let's say a small one, pulls compared to uh, a dehumidifier or an air mover? Sure, sure. And really, it's a fraction. Uh, the sophistication of the motorized impellers and uh, that are used today. Uh, we make a 500 CFM air scrubber now that uses less than two amps of power. Uh, the dry use HEPA 500 uses, uh, I think, about three amps of power. Uh, the, the units that use, say, 12 amps and so on are usually, say, like the 2,000 or 1,500 to 2,000 CFM. Uh, but there, the... Uh, the volume of air that you're doing is much larger. Uh, The trend in the industry has been going to these smaller, more energy-efficient air scrubbers that are spread throughout the building as opposed to a large central unit that essentially is less energy-efficient. Most of the air scrubbers that that came into the restoration industry uh, at the beginning came from the asbestos industry. And when you're doing asbestos, you have to run your air scrubber, but you don't have a lot of other power concerns. True. Uh, Restoration, we're trying to dry things out, so we've got to use a lot of power for other things. 
Well, Larry, we usually go to a roundup, but since Cliff, it's just you and I. You want to just ask one yeah, more? No, question? I th- I, no, I think that yeah, there's probably a couple others that we would like to you know to discuss. You know, the the one I'd like to chat with Larry about is you know whether or not you're an advocate for aggressive you know structural drying strategies where you know drying contractors would float carpet, drill holes into interstitial wall cavities or, or whether you're uh, you know whether you, you know whether you like to do that or don't like to do that or whether you recommend it or you don't uh, completely based on what you want to do how fast you want to accomplish it and uh, your most effective means to do it you know sometimes you have to drill holes into walls because essentially the moisture is just simply not going to migrate through that wall. Or maybe you've got a, uh, a metal stud system in there and you've got uh, water that is uh, liquid water, you know, sitting in the uh, channels of the uh, steel studs. You've got a, a, I'm not a big advocate necessarily of floating carpet, uh, but you know, tenting an area to concentrate the uh, the drying on particular areas, sure. I don't see any reason why you wouldn't want to dry something as quickly as you can do it economically. Uh, can and, I ask you why you're not an advocate for floating carpet? Uh, well, one of the things they found when they did that wet study is uh, carpet is much weaker when it's wet. So if it's not floated properly, you can damage the carpet. Uh, and we've all seen people float carpet inappropriately. Uh, as water damage restoration has evolved over the years, people always threw out pads. They floated carpet. A lot of times they'd end up replacing carpet. Uh, water damage really evolved from being carpet drying being structure drying, uh, where the earlier systems were just focused on the carpet. Carpet's not hard to dry. Uh, and <clears throat> so like with the test system, you actually use the carpet as uh, essentially a tent right. uh, to focus your heat where you want it. Uh, do the same thing with others. If you float a carpet, you have to pull all the furniture out of the room. If you're doing uh, in-place drying, <clears throat> you maneuver the furniture within the room. Uh, they're both effective. You know, every situation has its own uh, requirements. And personally, I, I, I found that uh, a lot of times you can do the in-place drying. So all depends on what you're drying and what you're comfortable doing. You know, you have to do what you know how to do, or you have to learn how to do it the different way. Larry, let me let me fi- uh, finish up with, I'll give you an option here. Cliff has two questions. I, I think they're both interesting. Uh, one is on truth in industry advertising, if you could comment on that. And the other one is uh, about the uh, heat drying patent litigation. And uh, take your pick. Is there either one you'd like to address? Well, it's probably a lot safer for me not to pick the heat drying litigation. Maybe maybe safer for us, too. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, well, uh, Phoenix has not been 
approached or cited some of our customers or a piece of, uh, that had used our equipment had been subpoenaed and so on, but uh, so far uh, they have not set their sights on us. I have a lot of things I'd like to say about it, but I won't. Okay. Uh, and then the other question was... About, uh, truth in industry advertising, especially when it comes to equipment. Really, I think in our industry, there is some exaggeration, but I don't see a lot of outright lying as far as equipment performance. Uh, <clears throat> you might have seen the video that I did that was in response. Dry East changed their tactics and actually attacked by name one of our pieces of equipment. Right. Uh, and there... After they came out with their, their second video, we felt we had to do something to combat that. Right. Uh, but otherwise, I think most everybody pretty much plays by the rules. What's your opinion? Well, my, you know, my opinion is that you know, I, I think what happened is, is initially um, there was a lot of exaggeration. I mean, going back even before Phoenix, I mean, there really, really was a lot of exaggeration. And I think it's cleaned up, and you know, I think sometimes the people that were responsible for the greatest exaggeration all of a sudden point to everyone else and say they're exaggerating, and we're going to have our equipment tested, and uh, you know, uh, so I don't know. I just I, I've been kind of out of it for a while, and. Uh, I yeah, I, I would ask you. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd say what you run into there is you've got uh, we got a the essentially the AHEM standard that everybody sizes their equipment by. Right. <clears throat> AHEM conditions are eighty degrees and sixty percent. How often do you have eighty degrees and sixty percent in a drying job? Well, you probably have it at, maybe at some point during the job. Right. Right. But. Uh, if you're doing your job, you're drying the place, so your temperature probably goes up and your relative humidity goes down. Uh, but it is the only standard test point that really exists as far as comparing different pieces of equipment to other pieces of equipment. Now, you could design a piece of equipment to just take water out at 80 and 60 better than anybody else, but then when you get the temperatures a little higher and temperatures a little bit lower, your equipment's not going to match the performance of other equipment. Right, so it's about the sweet spot, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And it's whether or not you want to have a, a wide sweet spot that your equipment works over a range of conditions better, or you can focus and just try and hit one and have a, uh, you know, the, I guess the nice AHAM number that you can quote in your advertising. But uh, there's so much more. LGR. LGR is a term that you came up with, uh, Cliff. Uh, you're the one that told me about it. Well, uh, I came up with it for you. <laughs> yeah, low-grain refrigerant. Right. And that's because, if you remember, we had people saying, this equipment's different, it works differently, we have to call it something different. Right. And, of course, I, being ignorant and dumb, resisted for a long time, but uh, eventually I was convinced. 
but, I mean, now we've got equipment. Uh, LGR is a term like Kleenex. Right. So there are a lot of people that make equipment that claim it's an LGR that it's not. Right. And so now you have to define, well, what is an LGR? Well, you know. Do they still play the numbers game? Uh, you know, with equipment, you know, um, you know, calling an air mover uh, a nine thousand or something like that. Uh, oh, they used to do the bench test, right? Where essentially they would they would use a bench test number as far as the total amount of CFM that the air mover would produce in free air, which means not in the housing that you're using. It right, in. right, right. Not so much. Not so much. That's good. So there's, you know, I think, you know, I think it's part of the evolution of the industry that everyone becomes more professional, and it's a good thing. It is. What we should have talked about is China. All right, let's talk about China. Uh, we've got a lot of equipment coming in from, uh, from overseas now that is economical, but not necessarily sophisticated. And they will make a lot of comments as far as, uh, you know, what their performance is and what their prices are and what their numbers are. They'll say they're an LGR, and they may or may not be. Uh, and uh, that is probably one of the biggest threats to a manufacturer like, uh, like Phoenix. You know, we make a good centrifugal air mover, and it has a list price of $315. And we get a, a Chinese machine that will come in that might have a price of $150. Big uh, difference. It's a big difference. And is this, you know, when you talk about China, is this uh, entrepreneurs in the United States going to China and having equipment made, you know, to their specifications for import or? Is this the Chinese figured out that there's just a huge market in this type of equipment, so they, they've made it and they've decided to sell it in the United States or both? Both. Uh, and I guess the first thing I'd want to qualify is huge market. Restoration, as big as it's become, right. is still not a huge market. Right. I mean, restoration itself is actually kind of a niche market. I think there are a lot of companies think it's a huge market, <laughs> and uh, they all want to get into it. But you know, you have to. Uh, I guess we can't keep the competition out, and I certainly wouldn't want to do that. But I would want people to be, uh, let's say, very, uh, really scrutinize what they're buying. An air mover is an air mover is an air mover. Isn't the case. A dehumidifier is a dehumidifier is not the case. They are different. They are going to work differently. And uh, I think most restoration contractors, they're going to be in it for a long haul. I mean, I've got units that come in that have 80,000 hours of dehumidification on them. Wow. Uh, that's a long time. We don't even like to think about what the payback was on that piece of Right, 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 right. Uh, but... You know, they, you got to get equipment that's going to do the job and do it properly and do it safely. You know, everything we make has UL 
are is uh, ETL tested to comply with UL. So we got you know UL stamps on everything. Well, I I, I got one other question, uh, and you know if you you know certainly a company such as Phoenix, um, you know you have projections of equipment that you're going to sell on on an annual basis. Uh, without hurricanes, you know, w- without the hurricane events, is is this still a market that's increasing, or is it a market that's stable, or is it a market that's in decline? Hmm. I mean, do you think that there's ever going to be enough restaurant? I mean, are there ever going to be enough dehumidifiers out there? Are there ever, you know, where all of a sudden uh, it's like a diminishing market? Kind of like, is it like uh, VCRs, where once everybody has a VCR, they don't need another VCR? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, there's been a lot of debate. This last year has been really event-free, right. far beyond any year I've seen in the 20 years I've been doing this. Right. There was no winter. With no winter, there's no snow. With no snow, there's no flooding, so there's no spring floods. Uh we had one hurricane, I think, that hit the U.S., uh, and there's an awful lot of equipment out there. Uh, in the, let's say, old days, let's say through the late 90s, early 2000, if you had an event, you would sell a lot of equipment. Now there's a lot of equipment out there. There's a lot of these uh, catastrophe-oriented companies. Right. that essentially stockpile a lot of equipment just for when those situations happen because through the 2000s, it pretty much happened every year. You know, Now we've had a couple of years where we're not having it, and, uh, yeah, we've seen a big decline in sales this year uh, on equipment because it's, the jobs are not uh, where they were. I've talked to a couple of people in the average restoration contractor that's established. Sorry, my dog. <laughs> that's okay. uh, the average restoration contractor, is, their business was down in the area of around maybe 12%. So that's your established guys. The new guys that are trying to start up a business now, right. they're probably down 20 to 25% from the projections they might have had. Uh, so the industry is down some. When the industry is down, you don't have events. They have equipment that works. There's really not a big impetus to buy new equipment. A lot of the more sophisticated people now will be on a program of turning their equipment over. Uh, it's probably one of the things that I would encourage people to do. I mean, if you've got a Phoenix 200 from 1994, Maybe it's time to sell that and get a new Phoenix. Uh, but, you know, I can also understand the argument saying, well, it works, so why would I want to get a new one? Right. Well, Larry, before we go, is there any. Uh, Val? You wanted to. Uh, yeah, oh, Larry. Sorry, Val. That's okay. Um, we always like to give the guests the last comment. Is there anything that you would like to add? Well, I appreciate the opportunity you gave me to talk. Uh hope I was helpful to the to people and I didn't just confuse them. Uh, 
the restoration industry is something I love. I love the people. I love the evolution it's gone through. Uh, and uh, I really kind of, what, devoted the last 20 years of my life, and I'll probably end up devoting what's left of it uh, to working in that industry, just because the people are great. Uh, we, uh, we've seen an evolution if we go from the early 90s when LGRs first came around. Now we've had the infusion of heat, uh, different systems for doing drying. Uh, I think the industry is headed toward, you know, trying to dry things as fast as possible and that we still have not uh, found all the solutions. You know, I've always felt that you can always do something better. You may do it good, but uh, perfection is a long, long way off. So equipment will continue to get better and better. And I would want the restoration contractors to make sure that they made, that they continue to train themselves, learn about new things that are happening, try new things, uh, really continue to innovate as much as they can and not let restoration become a uh, same old, same old kind of thing. That's, that's probably it. Well, I tell you, I, I know Val is one final, but before you go, um, the last 15 minutes, I think, and I know we stayed over, we stayed long, but that was really important, uh, a lot of good information, and, and we do appreciate that, Larry. Oh, absolutely. Anytime. Okay, Larry, and how would our listeners get in contact with you or your company? Uh, I can be emailed at lcarlson, C-A-R-L-S-O-N, at thermostore.com, T-H-E-R-M-A-S-T-O-R.com, or at usephoenix.com. Uh, and uh, I'm always available. And the cell phone number is uh, 608-209-7586. If you have any questions, uh, you can always visit our website uh, to look at equipment, and that's uh, usephoenix.com. That's Hughes, U-F-E, right? Correct. Gotcha. We have a Hughes here, H-U-G-S. Yeah, we have a Hughes here, too. <laughs> oh, <okay>. <laughs> <laughs> It sounds the same sometimes. I probably had to go get that website, huh? Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying, uh, well, first I want to thank our guest, Larry Carlson. Fascinating. Uh, really appreciate you staying over and uh, joining us. It's been a long time. We've been trying to get this show together, and, and we did it. I uh, also want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man, uh, Cliff well, Spotnik. Fun, always as, as always quite enjoyable uh our our uh, engineer roxy v val bender thanks for helping us out here again today no problem most importantly our growing group of loyal listeners come back again next friday at noon for the next broadcast of iaq radio
close to places like Abbey Road Take turns tonight, not turns to whatever we want We're young enough to say Another IAQ Radio production. 